So I'm going to move forward then with the sermon, um, and that'll begin by uh, reading our sermon text, uh, the text on which the, the teaching will be based, which comes from the book of Ezekiel, which is one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. It's about in the middle and to the right uh, in your Bible. We'll be in chapter 15. We've been in a sermon series on Ezekiel, and why? I've asked myself that quite a lot lately, actually. Um, sermon series on Ezekiel. The reason is because if for no other reason, I simply want to remind you that Jesus uh, is, is preached, Jesus is pointed to, Jesus is figured and displayed for us in all of the Bible, including the parts with which we're less familiar, like the book of Ezekiel. In chapter 15, uh, the Lord gives Ezekiel another, another revelation, another uh, statement of what is to come, particularly addressing the city of Jerusalem. This is about, um, if memory serves me, 592, 593 BC, somewhere in there. Uh, and so this is what we read. The word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, came to me. Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest is wood taken from it to make anything. Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it. Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it, the middle of it is charred. Is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it? And when it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's quite a contrast with what we've been singing about, Lord, forgiving your, the sins of Israel. We're going to get there. I will set my face against them, the Lord says, though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them, and you will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord Yahweh, the Lord God. And so, perhaps with some trembling, we confess again that this is the word of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God. And so, Ezekiel chapter 15 uh, is, as you might imagine, connected to chapter 14, which I preached on two Sundays ago. Uh, Well, actually, two and three Sundays ago. Uh, And I want to talk to you, make a couple of connections before we get into this text in particular in chapter 15. You might recall in chapter 14, verse 13, that the people of God, that is Israel, have acted unfaithfully and broken their covenant relationship. All right? When a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, I stretch out my hand against it, break its supply of bread, send famine, and, and so on. Right? And so what we, what we talked about in, in those places, what I shared with you from God's word, is that Israel had acted unfaithfully and broken the covenant with Yahweh their God. And just so you know, we're not talking about like a one-time offense as a people. We're talking about a repeated and prolonged, even multi-generational commitment to idolatry, rejection of and rebellion against the Lord. And as a consequence, we find out that they have become the... English word is desolate, verse 16. Um, that uh, even, if, even if these three righteous men, we talked about that, were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, they alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. 
Right? And so what's happening is the judgment of God is being poured out on Jerusalem. It's already happened once with one exile. That's why Ezekiel's in Babylon. But there are still people living in Jerusalem. And the short version of the long story is that that initial exile still has not driven God's people to repentance. And so the Lord in chapter 15 gives Ezekiel a parable. That is a story involving a uh, vine and uh, wood from the vine, which we'll talk more about in a moment. But I want to briefly address just the whole concept of parables with you. Jesus seemed to really like them. He used them very often in his teaching. Parables are a story that reveal a truth by some kind of metaphor or analogy. And that truth is usually um, either kind of hard to grasp, which is thus the parable, or, or more likely it's a truth that's being avoided and intentionally not grasped. And so it's used to make things clearer. This kind of parable usually begins with something that is universally agreed upon. Right? So an, an example um, would be, for example, when Jesus tells the story of the, the pearl of great price, the man who goes, he, he finds the pearl, then he sells uh, all that he has so that he can buy that field and get that pearl out of it. And at least, you know, telling that in a group, you could at least get kind of universal agreement. Yeah, if the pearl was that valuable, if it's more valuable than all that he had, that is what you would do. You wouldn't tell anybody, right? So it starts with a point of universal agreement and then moves to application based on kind of relevance and consistency. Like, okay, since you think that, this is also what you should think about this other thing over here. And so uh, the most obvious, I think probably most famous example of this is when the prophet Nathan goes to King David. King David has been involved in gross adultery and murder. And Nathan comes to the king. The prophet of God comes to the king. And because David is at the end of the day still an autocrat, still in charge, Nathan has some care. And he comes and he basically says, Your Majesty, there was a man who was very rich, and had a bunch of uh, cattle and, and, and sheep. And, and he had a neighbor who was very poor, had very little. In fact, pretty much one of, the, one of the few things he had was a little baby lamb. And he didn't have any kids, so he cared for that little lamb like it was, like it was one of his kids. I mean, it, it sat up with him at his table and ate from his hand. And, you know, it was for all intents and purposes, we'd be like, okay, he had a puppy, right? And he says, and then the rich man holds a feast. And rather than go and, you know, take any one of the sheep or cattle from his field, he goes and he gets the little baby lamb from his neighbor and kills it for his feast. And David's enraged, right? What are we going to do with this guy? We're going to do all sorts of terrible things to him so that Israel knows I don't tolerate stuff like that. Who is this man? And what does Nathan say? He says, he says you're the man. You're the man. You're the one who, who violated God's commandments who committed adultery, who committed murder on top of it, right? And so, and this drives David to repentance, writing the most beautiful, I think, most beautiful psalm of repentance, most beautiful words of repentance in the entire Bible, Psalm 51. If you can do better than that for, for repentance, then, then let me know. Um, perhaps second only to Psalm 130, which we sang today. And so this is, what, this is the power of a parable then. And so that's what we have in chapter 15. Vines and wood. Now, we're not really used to that because for most of us, I would say the only time we actually talk about vines is, you know, when we're talking about the Bible, okay? Unless, unless you've got a vineyard, in which case 
good for you. Uh, most of us don't, right? And I know some of, some of you do. I won't, I won't call you out, but I know some of you do. But Israel in the Bible is commonly symbolized as a vine in prophetic literature. So there's an example in Psalm 80, uh, which would not be prophetic literature. It'd be the Psalms, however. Uh, so in the Old Testament in a number of cases. And so Psalm 80, you brought a vine out of Egypt, right? Speaking of Israel. You'd, you drove out the nations, you planted it, you cleared the ground for it, it took deep root and filled the land. Talking about Jerusalem. And so the vine dresser, Yahweh, cares for what he has planted, yeah? As a consequence, God expects his people to bear fruit. Have a look at this text in Jeremiah chapter 2. Uh, when the Lord. Oh, is it not there? Oh, okay. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 2, I'll read it to you real quick. I apologize. Every now and then, I just like to keep things interesting by completely flubbing the lineup of my scripture text. So Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. Yet I planted you a choice vine, the Lord says, holy of, of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? So the Lord's saying, I planted you, but, but you're, not, you're not what I planted anymore. A very similar kind of idea here in Ezekiel. God expects his people to bear fruit, and that expectation is often disappointed. It's what we've seen again and again throughout Ezekiel so far. What Ezekiel does, he takes this vine metaphor and modifies it a bit by saying, you're not the vine, actually. You're the, you're the pruning. You're the stuff that gets cut off so that the vine can actually flourish. Now, I, I tried to, um, uh, during this week, essentially what Ezekiel's talking about, if you can, can picture a little, little tree with, with a vine on it, and it's got a bunch of sticks, a bunch of little, little tiny sticks going out in every direction. That's what we're talking about here, these, these little tiny branches that have to be snipped off so that the vine can continue to grow healthy and strong and produce fruit. And I, I, tried, to, um, I tried to actually go to the, uh, a couple of different places to get just kindling, which I didn't have a lot of time and couldn't find it because it's the middle of the summer and who needs kindling for a fire in the middle of the summer? So a lot of places didn't have it. But kindling would be a good example of what we're talking about, right? Little pieces of wood, about yay big, that are pretty much useless for anything except for burning. That's what they're for. That's what this parable is communicating. You have this introduction of this visual metaphor in verses 1 and 2. The wood of the vine, that is the prunings, these tiny little branches that get broken off. I mean, if, if you've ever been on like a camping trip and you need firewood for the camping trip and your, your kid comes up and a bunch of little, little tiny sticks, right? You're going to sort of smile and be like, okay, that's going to burn for all of seven seconds. Uh, what we're looking for is, is firewood. So what do you do with these tiny branches once you break them off? And the answer is not much, right? How does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest, the answer is it doesn't. And then verse 3, is wood taken from it to make anything? Answer, no. Do people take a, a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? So maybe in your kitchen you have a, a pot or a pan that hangs on a, on a peg or a nail or something like that. Well, again... Think of the piece of kindling. Are you going to hang anything off of that? Are you even going to fix it to a wall? No, it's not going to hold anything up. It's not going to serve that purpose. It's pretty much only good for one thing, verse 4. Fuel for fire. 
What do you do with it after that? After it's half ash and half charred up little piece of semi-transparent kindling, well, now it's good for absolutely nothing. Behold, it is given to the fire. Oh, sorry, go back. Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Answer, no. Go on to verse 5, please. Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred can it ever be used for anything, anything else being the idea. So before, it was useless except for one thing, maybe after that, absolutely good for nothing. And so when we get to verse 6, go ahead, we begin with therefore, and we get the application and interpretation of the picture. The Lord is saying, this is Jerusalem. They were my people. They loved me. They were my city. I called them out of the wilderness and made them mine. And they decided to live like pathetic, worthless little prunings, little sticks, little pieces of kindling, good for nothing except burning. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I've given to the fire for fuel, so I've given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so the Lord says, they're good for nothing except ashes, verse 7. And then we're going to go immediately to verse 8 as well. He says, I'll make the land a wilderness. That's what the word means. You came out of the wilderness. Now the land's going to be a wilderness. Because rebellion never cultivates a garden, to use biblical terminology. Idolatry never cultivates the the lush garden we think it will, the only thing that it does is it burns the land until it's a wilderness. You see the, the metaphor. So what's the point? Right? Well, yeah, I'm getting to the point. There are at least three things I want us to learn this morning from this text. The first one is uselessness exists. Okay? That's what the Lord is saying here. Right? That these are my people, but right now, basically as good as kindling because of their hatred of me and their commitment to their idolatry. Uselessness exists. It's a thing. It can be a descriptor of lives that some of us live. And that should scare you a little. I think it's the opening line from, um, is it Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis, where he says, there was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it. Right? And as you go on to read more and more about Eustace, you're like, his name sounds like useless, and I think I know why, right? Uselessness exists, and it is possible for you to live a life poorly lived. Useless in the weight and from the perspective of eternity. In the Old Testament, we meet two guys uh, in 1 Samuel, two brothers, sons of Eli, and we actually read something rather terrible about them. We read that they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. I just want you to hold that in your mind for, well, the rest of the sermon. We will come back to it. But I mean, worthless men, they did not know the Lord. Now, I want to, I I submit to you that whether or not you're a Christian, there's a fear in your heart and in mine of living a useless or worthless life. And we can try to fight it. There are lots of ways to fight it, okay? Okay. One is by getting on the treadmill of productivity, right? And Christians can do this. Um, I've found great help and great usefulness from a guy named Michael Hyatt. A lot of his books have greatly helped me to, to just kind of get tasks done and get a planner and kind of organize 
at least have some semblance of organization to my life. Uh, it used to be a lot worse, uh, thanks be to God. But like at the end, at the end of the day, even the, all the productivity gurus and all they can give you is very limited. Number two, we can try to avoid it by making a joke out of it. This is what I, I see a lot of, and you've probably seen it too, where it, it's just a kind of glibness about really destructive behavior. Like, isn't my destructive behavior hilarious? Isn't it funny that I stayed up till 3 a.m. like watching Netflix? Ha ha, isn't that funny? Isn't it funny that I plan a bunch of stuff to do and really need to do it and don't get any of it done because there was something on TV? Isn't that hilarious? Like, I, just, I see that a lot mainly on social media. Like, isn't my cowardice hilarious? I, was, I had to do this thing that would have taken a lot of courage, but I chickened out. It, like, isn't my paralyzing insecurity funny? I would say, no, it's, it's, it's not. It's trying to avoid a sense of uselessness by making a joke out of it. Or number three, we can simply give the fear a name and tolerate it. I don't know if you've heard of this, but a lot of people in my generation talk about imposter syndrome, which is the sense that, like, you're in a group of people and you're all doing the same thing, whether it's vocation or your job or, or school or, or whatever it is, and, and you feel like the joke, the imposter. And if anybody else knew, like all of you know what you're doing, but none of you know that I don't know what I'm doing. Right? And some of that, I think, is rooted in a reality um, because part of, um, well, this is kind of meddling, but, but one of the curses of the internet is you can gain this much knowledge about a thing and make it sound like that much. Like, with a little bit of skill, you can pull that off. Um, if you don't believe me, get a social media... No, don't get a social media account if you don't have one. But, yeah, so there's a way you can do that. And so if imposter syndrome grows out of that, well, that makes perfect sense. But at least one thing this text tells us, there are other things, but I'm starting with, it is possible to be called worthless by the Lord in terms of the life that we are living, in terms of the decisions we're making and what our heart and our body and our mind is worshiping. Look back at verse 3. Let's go back to verse 3. Where God is saying, you're, you're the kindling, you're, the, you're the, the part that gets cut off the vine, and, and what do you expect me to do with that? What are you going to do with that lousy little stick? It's only fit for the fire, verse 4. That's what the Lord says. It's only fit for one thing, and that is fire, which, of course, is judgment language. Jesus talks about a similar concept. We're going to jump over to Luke 12. In Luke 12, we read about this fellow who uh, needs to build barns, right? Jesus tells them this parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, What shall I do for... I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones. I'll store all my grain, all my stuff. Just, just build bigger places for all my stuff. Right? And what happens? I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. You talk to yourself too? This guy's preaching to himself. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, there's a worthlessness, right, about the way he's living his life. It's built around his stuff. And maybe you're thinking right now, as I was thinking, well, yeah, but on the bright side, at least he's like a negative example, right? Don't do that. And fair enough, but do you want to live that way? Do you want to be the negative example that everybody goes, okay, don't be like that? Uselessness exists, and it is possible to live a life that, biblically speaking, heavenly speaking, 
is worthless. And that stings, doesn't it? And that's my next point, is that this, this prospect of usefulness, if you'll pardon the, the, the pun, to use this, the metaphor from Ezekiel, it burns like fire. The Lord says that Jerusalem in her rebellion has become useless, or rather she's only good for one thing, and that is fuel for the fire. The Lord tells Ezekiel, verse 6, the inhabitants of Jerusalem then have been given over to this purpose of judgment. In other words, as we've read in previous chapters, the people of Jerusalem have been, for the most part, a people committed to making themselves God's enemies. And you have to read with that understanding, with that context, because the temptation that's in your flesh and mine is to make God appear unreasonable when we talk about judgment. Either, either in His demands, commandments, or His uh, judgments and His justice. We, we are tempted when we read those things to say, not fair. This goes back to the garden, by the way. This was the fundamental temptation. You remember? Genesis chapter 3, the serpent says to the woman, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That was the temptation. And that word in Hebrew, know, is not just have an awareness of. Adam and Eve already had an awareness of right and wrong. You know how? God said, don't do it, not that tree. (laughs) Don't eat from that tree. Okay, right and wrong, got it. The temptation from the serpent was not, you're finally going to know what right is and what wrong is. The temptation from the serpent, listen to this, the temptation from the serpent was, you know how this God of yours has been declaring it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good? Well, well, uh, is it really? Shouldn't that be up to you? Shouldn't you get to decide what's right or wrong for you? What's true or false for you? What's good or evil for you? God is trying to keep that from you. He knows that when you eat that fruit, you're going to be like Him and be the one who gets to decide what's good and what's evil. And you get to determine that for yourself. And since then, one of our most fundamental temptations has been to take our sins and idols and say good. And then to take what God has said and say not good. In so doing, we twist God's image, if you will, so that He looks like me, so that He looks like you, rather than being conformed to His image more and more so that we look and sound more like Him. And so, do you begin to see why what's at risk there is is not knowing God? Because we're we're twisting it so that when we think of God, we, we think, oh, well, God just... He likes the things I like, and he's okay with the things I'm okay with. And do you see why, to go to the next one, please, why the repeated refrain throughout the entire book of Ezekiel so far has been, you will know that I'm the Lord. That's what's going to result from this. I'm going to correct this false God that you, this false God idea you have in your head. And the knowledge that there is a judge of the earth who determines what is good and what is evil, that unsettles your heart and mine apart from the grace of Jesus, because we know we fall short of glory and of goodness. And beyond that, just all this talk of worthlessness and uselessness as a potential, it unsettles us, or at least it should. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The fact is, when you're confronted with that possibility, by by me right now or by something else in your life, 
this, this idea, this prospect that I might be living a life of purposelessness or worthlessness or that the possibility that my pain and my suffering might be worthless or that my work and, and my goals might be worthless. We cannot bear that suggestion in our spirits. Men tend to hear that suggestion whispered into their spirits about the time they hit their 40s, right? We call it a midlife crisis. That's why there's the whole trope and topic of a midlife crisis because there's this realization that sets in that what if all my work is useless? And part of the answer, this is a different sermon, but briefly, part of the answer is read Ecclesiastes <laughs> to where, where you will find uh, where the Lord will teach you how to bear that burden, men and women. But this very suggestion of worthlessness does terrible things in our spirit. It makes husbands despise their wives. It makes wives despise their husbands. It makes children despise their parents. It makes human beings rage against their God. And so the question that should confront you this morning is, how, do I, how can I keep my life from being classified in that terminology? How can I keep my life from being useless? There's an answer to our problem, and as unbelievable as it might sound, I'm going to give it to you out of ancient texts that are still addressing the serpents and specters and dragons that are shaking your spirit today. Because we believe and know and confess that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down out of heaven pursuing His people. And when He was here on earth about 2,000 years ago, He started echoing some Ezekiel. Let's go to John chapter 15. Jesus uses this imagery of Israel as a vine, except He says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. So rather than simply saying, you are the prunings that are going to be pulled off the vine and thrown into the fire, he says, I am the true vine. What does that mean? Think of it. God had told Jerusalem some 600 years before this, you are like the kindling that has to be cut away from the vine. Jesus, God in flesh, says, I am the vine. You are not the vine, but I am the true vine. I am the true fruit-bearing Israel that you will never be. And the good news is that our true vine, Jesus Christ, brings us to believe in Him, which is to be in Him and to be a member of His body. And therefore, you are now a part of fruit-bearing Israel. And never again will you be fitted for uselessness, fitted for fire or judgment. Never again. Because if you're part of the true vine, you are identified with Him. So, do we identify with Him then is the question. What does it mean to identify with Him? To know and believe Him? I mean, who is He? Son of God. Obedient. Righteous. Victorious. This is what it is to be connected then to the true vine. That will cause you to bear fruit Whatever your station, whatever your vocation, whatever your income, whatever your expertise, whatever your lifespan, whatever your health condition, whatever your mental status, you are no longer vine or pruning. You are the fruit connected to the true vine. And to be connected to Him and in Him is to have glorious, untouchable, immovable, imperishable, purposeful, purposeful life now, today, not because it's going to get made glorious by worldly standards. This is where 
our prophetic warning has to continue to sound, church. Because just as to be with him and in him is to bear fruit, we have to also confess with trembling that Jesus told us that to be apart from him, which is the next part, John 5 and, uh, 15, 5 and 6. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. You see, this means that apart from all the ways you want to design purpose for your life, apart from all the ways you want to think your life matters, all of the ways that you construct apart from the true vine will on the last day be worthless. And all your worst fears of exposure as an imposter and as and just in general, fear of worthlessness, will be placed under a spotlight of judgment. And that is nothing more or less than what you would deserve, which is what you already know, which is why you're afraid of worthlessness. But because of the cross and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our true vine, under His Lordship, we talked about it this morning, we prayed for BJ and Ketty, every work, no matter how the world classifies it, every work under the Lordship of Jesus glorifies Him delights Him and shapes you. Every word of encouragement, every confession of faith, every repetition of the Lord's Prayer, every thank you Jesus right before you sit down to lunch, every coin for the cause or penny for the poor is given a brilliant new purpose. And no good work is too small to matter in His kingdom. Because what you realize is that the work you're doing isn't measured by its seen impact or by its inspirational power, but by the God to whom it is offered. By the Christ in whose name it is done. By the Holy Spirit by whose power it's fueled. And then far from being consumed like kindling on the last day, you are rather the one shielded and covered by the sacrifice of Jesus, our true vine. And I know That doesn't mean, all of that doesn't mean that Christians don't occasionally struggle with a sense or a feeling of purposelessness in them. So what what of the person, pastor, what of the person who has some terminal illness perhaps? Maybe he has weeks to live. What do you say to them? My answer is, I will say to them the very same thing I will say to you in the most splendid and healthy moment of your life. Do you want to know your purpose? It is to have your sins forgiven. That is your purpose in life. It is to have your sins forgiven. Really and truly and totally forgiven. And to rest in the confidence that nothing can take it away, not even death. Because apart from the Lordship of Jesus, our work burns. It burns. It just burns away. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. But under the Lordship of Jesus, united to the true vine, the only fire you will ever face is the one that burns away all your worthless idols and the impurities that remain. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul. My life, my all.
In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus, our true vine, in whom we have this great promise that we will bear fruit for you, for your glory. I pray, Lord, for those who are at war in their spirit today with a sense of purposelessness, perhaps because they do not know you, and perhaps because, like Eli's sons, they're living out worthlessness because they do not know the Lord. And so I pray that you would deliver them from sin and death and the devil. Indeed, by bringing them to know you as their own Lord and Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.